Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. ...had come to an end, and when his life and his book had finished being penned, that son of man had still not come for them. For as the visions promised, God's kingdom would come long after Daniel and his friends. It would come after the Persians, Medes, Greeks, and Babylonians. For even though Israel was back in their land, they were still waiting for their savior. They were still waiting for the son of man. He would not reach his goal through furnaces, lion's dens, or amassing armies and gold. Instead, he would transform a cross into his throne. Good morning again, South Valley. Great to see you guys today. We are in Daniel chapter 11, and we don't have a lot of time together, so we need to just get right to it. By the way, guys, is the TV turned on up there? I don't know if it's turned on. Yes, it is turned on. Okay, great. Uh, welcome. My name is Ricky Hemi. Uh, welcome to South Valley. Thanks for joining us in person. Thanks for joining us online. We got 45 verses to cover today. We have been going through the book of Daniel verse by verse. We haven't skipped a single verse yet, so we're not going to skip a verse today. Doesn't matter how long it is, we are going to get through this thing. We have been faithful. We are almost there. 12 chapters total in this book, and we are in chapter 11. So let me bring you up to speed. Last week, we learned that this last section, chapters 10 through 12, form a single vision. And if you've been paying attention to these visions in the book of Daniel, you'll notice that the visions tend to get longer and longer and longer, and they tend to elaborate on earlier visions. They become more detailed, a little more complicated. And so if you've been riding this, this series with us, you probably realize like, man, I thought that was the hardest vision. And then I got the next vision. That was one was, was way harder. And then the next one was harder than the previous one. And that's just how Daniel received these different visions. Chapter 10 was a, uh, a preface to the vision. Chapter 11 describes the vision itself. Chapter 12 provides a postscript. Now, last week we learned that Daniel he was mourning and he was fasting for 21 days when he was visited by a divine being sent to him to tell him about the future of his people. He's praying and fasting. A divine being comes and he gives him a vision of what's gonna happen, what's gonna happen in, in a, within 150 years after the vision that he received and also what's gonna happen in the last days, the end of time. Today's sermon is titled, The Last Days. Now we mentioned this before. But a quarter of the Bible is predictive prophecy. The Bible is the only book on the planet that predicts the future, makes prophecies about the future, thousands of prophecies about what will happen, and then guess what? It actually happens just as God said it would happen. Okay, we, we don't know the future, but here at South Valley, we worship the God who does. Can I get an amen? God knows the future. 
And he says it time and time again in the book of Daniel. He says it time and time again through his various prophets in the Old Testament. He talks through his, his apostles and through Jesus in the New Testament. God knows the future, and sometimes he gives us, gives us a picture of the future. Now, Daniel 11 is a glimpse of the future, and it's such an amazing glimpse of the future that Charles Swindoll, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, great preacher, professor at my school, Dallas Theological Seminary. He said, Daniel 11 is one of the most remarkable chapters in the entire Bible. Bible. Now, the, the, here's kind of a breakdown of it. Uh, first, there, well, let me back up here. The last 10 verses, oh, where am I at here? I'm, I'm moving so quickly. Okay. The first 35 verses of Daniel chapter 11 give us 135 prophecies that span a period of 150 years, 135 prophecies in 35 verses. And all of those prophecies have already been perfectly fulfilled and corroborated by historians. That's the first 35 verses. The last 10 verses, fast forward to the last days, and they talk about a future terrifying world ruler who will war against God's people, the saints, who will trample the truth and who will set himself up to be worshiped. Any idea who this guy might be? The Antichrist. And so here's a summary of this chapter. John Phillips says this, the prophecy, this one here, deals with the rise and fall of empires. The prophecy reaches all the way from the heyday of the Persian Empire right down to the days of Antiochus Epiphanes into the deployment of Roman armies on the stage of the world. Then it takes a giant leap down the centuries to the end times and gives us details about the coming reign of the Antichrist. Now, we've been preaching Daniel because we believe that the world needs prophecy. The, the church today doesn't just need pithy statements and sappy one-liners that we could put up on our Instagram and social media. We need truth. People today are genuinely concerned about the future. They need to know that they worship a God who is in control of the future. All of us are trying to figure out what's going on. All of us are trying to figure out what's going to happen next year. All of us are trying to, we want to know what's happening, what's going to happen economically, what's going to happen politically, what's going to happen with my family. We want to know the future. And what we see in Daniel is although we don't know the future, we worship the God who does. And that said, there's, there's a lot to cover in this passage. We're only going to be able to hone in on certain details. And so for time's sake, we're going to survey the main prophecies from Daniel 11 and they all revolve around five rulers that were predicted in this vision. And they all conveniently begin with the letter A. The first is Ahasuerus. The second is Alexander the Great. The third is Antiochus III. The fourth is Antiochus Epiphanes. And the fifth is the Antichrist. So that's kind of the breakdown of Daniel 11. I'm gonna pray and slow us down, slow myself down, and we're gonna get into this thing. Will you guys pray with me? Father God, I just want to ask that right now, that you'd speak to us. As we approach your holy scriptures, I pray that you'd give us a reverence for your truth. I pray that we would have a reverence for you. God, we are finite and you are infinite. We are often struggling and fearful and you are full of, of light. You are full of truth. 
You give hope in, in, in the midst of darkness. You, you bring life in the face of death. You are in control. You are sovereign. You are on the throne. And although the, the nations are, are fighting against each other and although rulers fight for power, you never have to fight for it because you are in the same place you've always been and will always be. And that is on your throne. You are in charge. You are God. And God, we need you especially in a time where the world is shaking, especially in the time where, where we, we just wonder where things are headed, we need the reminder that you got our backs, you are with us. And even in difficulty, you will purify us, you will strengthen us, and you will raise up a, a, a group of believers who are on fire for you. I pray that we would be among them. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, let's dive into this. Daniel 11, verse one. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I'll show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. The first ruler prophesied in this passage is the fourth king of Persia, somebody historians identify as Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, I, I always get his name wrong. Let's just call it Ahasuerus, okay? Or you call it what you want. Um, Ahasuerus goes by another popular name, and that's King Xerxes. You guys ever heard of King Xerxes? King Xerxes is someone you probably recognize for two reasons. One is, this is the guy who fought against King Leonidas at the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, and, and if you've ever heard of, you know, the 300, we are Sparta, that's King Xerxes. He's the one attacking uh, King Leonidas at the Battle of Thermopylae. He's also popular and well-known because he plays a major role in an Old Testament book called Esther, where he marries the woman that the book is named after. Esther tells us that he reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia and indicates the scope of his wealth by recording a lavish 180-day feast that he hosted for all his officials and all his servants. He led one of the largest armies in all of history. He once sent out soldiers that numbered 2,641,000 men to go and attack the Greek city-states. But eight months later, he found himself struggling and he actually had to straggle home broken and beaten. So the great King Xerxes was going to be overthrown and overpowered by another ruler, the second ruler predicted in Daniel's prophecy. These are predictions before they actually even happen. Okay, Daniel's getting a vision of the future and he gets a vision of another ruler that's gonna supplant King Xerxes. And this is what it says. Then a mighty king shall arise after Xerxes, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken. So he's gonna rise to power really fast. He's gonna be more powerful, more mighty than everyone before him. And right when he's at the top of the world, everything's gonna be broken. He's gonna lose his life. And then it's gonna be divided, his kingdom, towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity. So his children aren't gonna inherit it. He won't have heirs. He's gonna to have to give it to other people, nor according to authority with, with, with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside him. Do you guys remember who this might be? Alexander the Great. 
So we've talked already in the past about Alexander the Great because Daniel has already had visions of this ruler. He's pictured as a leopard with wings in previous chapters. He's pictured as a goat that conquers so swiftly that he doesn't even touch the ground. And what you need to know about Alexander the Great is this man was raised by parents who wanted to to mold him into a warrior king. His dad was king of Macedon and he dreamed of one day conquering the Persians. And Sadly, his mom and dad, they were, they were assassinated when he was young. He was only in his 20s, and so he was thrust into leadership. But he was such a brilliant warrior earlier, early on in his life that in, 330, in 34, 334 BC, he gathered an army of 35,000 Greeks to attack a Persian army of 100,000 men. They killed 20,000 Persian soldiers and lost only 100 Greek soldiers. Okay, this guy was a, a military strategist, and I think you guys can appreciate that being in a Navy town to have a good military leader. This guy was a military strategist, but at 32 years years old, he had conquered the known world. And when he had defeated everybody, he became bored with his life. He sat down, he wept, and history records that he actually became an alcoholic because he had nothing else to do. And sometime, whether we don't know if it was alcohol or if it was poison, but at the age of 33, he died likely of alcoholism. He had no legitimate heirs and those close to him who might take over the throne were murdered by generals and by others who were fighting for power. And so instead of his kingdom going to his family, his kingdom was divided among four generals, which Daniel said would happen. His kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. God said it would happen and it happened. That's what we're seeing here today. Now, it's easy for us to just read this and be like, okay, that's pretty cool. No, that's mind blowing. That's not just kind of cool. This doesn't exist anywhere. This is not in the Quran. This is no, there's no other book on the planet that makes predictions about specific rulers who will rise to power, be taken down, kingdom divided, who will come up after them, how it's gonna happen. Daniel, what's happening, what we're reading here in Daniel is a miracle. It's an act of God. It is prophecy. And it is only found in the Bible. One other story worth mentioning that actually doesn't come from the Bible, but from our history books. Okay, if you want just a history book to talk about this. There's a historian named Josephus. He wrote about the antiquities of the Jews. He is a famous Jewish historian. He wrote most of the history that we we have accepted in our history books from that time period. He talks about Alexander and how one day Alexander had a vision about his conquest. So he always wanted to attack the Persians, but he didn't know when until he had a vision one day that a man wearing purple came to him and said, hey, it's time, go and attack. Your enemy will be in your hands. And so he began to gather his troops, head towards Persia, when he was going through Israel and Israel was the next on his hit list. So he would have gone in and destroyed everything and, you know, ransacked the temple and all of that stuff. But what happened was kind of crazy. The high priest of the time decided to go out and meet Alexander on the road. He had a vision that he needed to be peaceful towards Alexander. And so he has all the Israelites wearing white, their religious garbs, and he gets in a purple robe and he meets Alexander out on the road. And when Alexander saw him, he was stunned because he saw in that moment, the man from his vision. 
And so he got off his horse and he honored this high priest that he was actually there to attack and dethrone. And he was so stunned, he went to the temple, offered a sacrifice in the temple. And then when he was in the temple, the priest opened the Daniel scroll and he said, hey, this passage about this goat and this leopard and this ruler, this is you. Daniel Daniel's scroll was given to Alexander and he saw in advance what was gonna happen. And so he was so in awe, what he did is he asked, well, what can I do for you? And they said, well, if you could just allow us to have religious freedom under the, the Greek empire. And so Alexander gave him religious freedom and he went on with confidence to the next city, to the next place, and he conquered the Persians, fulfilling what would happen in the book of Daniel. That is mind blowing, right? Can I get an amen? Mind blowing. I'm telling you that story though, because liberal scholars would like to say that, you know what, this stuff is so specific, it had to be written later, like after the fact. There's no way it could be this specific. That's what they have to say about every prophecy. They have to figure out a way to discredit God. No, I can't, we can't believe this, because if this is actually true, if this actually happened, then God is actually real, and now I have to come under God's rule and live my life according to his ways. So no, this can't be true, and so they try to explain it away, except for the fact that other historians point out that these events actually happened, and that they actually saw the prophecies written about them, and there's a Another important person in the Bible who believed in the prophecy of Daniel and talked about the prophecy of Daniel. He's an important figure in all of scripture. Any idea what his name is? Jesus Christ. And if Jesus can say with certainty that the prophecies of Daniel are in fact true and he can actually proclaim them and talk about the abomination of desolation that is still to come prophesied by Daniel, then you and I can see and say with confidence that what the book of Daniel says is in fact the very word of God. Can I get an amen? amen. Well, Daniel prophesied the destruction of the temple long before it happened. He prophesied all these nations long before it happened. Jesus piggybacked on it, talked about all of this stuff. But what I want you to see is that God was using all these nations, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, to prepare the way for his son. You see, God doesn't just do things in history just because he's bored and wants to, you know, what should I do with this nation? He has a plan. He has a purpose. All of history was driving in a certain direction, preparing the way for Jesus Christ. Once again, all of history today is driving in a certain direction, preparing once again for the coming of Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, history was preparing through things like Hellenism, which is what Alexander the Great brought to the world at the time, the ancient world. Hellenism was bringing Greek culture to the world and they, they, they made the Greek language the common language of the day. So in, in this time, you know, there was a, a common education, there was a desire for art, there was a common language. This is the first time that the world was sharing a common language since the Tower of Babel. So one historian says this, it was through the conquest of Alexander that Greek became the language of literature and commerce from the shores of the Mediterranean to the banks of the Tigris. It is impossible to estimate the effect of this spread of Greek on the promulgation of the gospel. God was preparing the world for Jesus. When you open up your New Testament Bible, if you were to open it up in its original language, what language is the New Testament written in? 
Greek. Jesus spoke Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, but he spoke the language of the day, which was Greek. Jesus traveled along Roman roads. The gospel went out on Roman roads at following, the, following the Greeks. So all of history was, was preparing the way for Jesus. Once again, all of history is preparing the way for Jesus. Now, when Alexander died, he left a giant power vacuum. The whole world was now fighting for supremacy and the little nation of Israel was caught in the, in the middle. So I don't know if you look at geography very often. But if you look at the Middle East, there's this little strip of land next to the Mediterranean on the Mediterranean called Israel. It's been fought over for centuries. It's still gonna be fought over until the return of Jesus. And this little piece of land hinges on three continents. There's Europe, there's Asia, there's Africa. Israel is the center of the world. And oftentimes, because it's the center of the world, it is the center of world conflict. And so what happens here in Daniel, once Alexander is gone, there becomes this big power vacuum and everybody is fighting for control of this tiny little piece of land and Israel is caught in the middle. And so here we get the third ruler in our, our story and that is Antiochus III. He ruled from 223 to 187 BC. Now this is the longest section that I'm gonna read and we're gonna read all of it because we've read every verse so far. So we're not stopping now. You guys ready? Daniel 11, verse five, this is what it says. So Alexander's gone, what's gonna happen after him? Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years, he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and, she shall, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart will be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops for there shall be no strength to stand." But he who comes against him shall do as he wills and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land, that's Israel with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with 
the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give them the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterwards, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back towards the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days, he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Those are our verses. Now you see why the second half of Daniel is often neglected. You see why? Because everyone loves the stories of Daniel one through six. But when it gets to the prophecy part, you actually have to do some digging. You actually have to learn some history. You actually have to spend some time in the word trying to figure these things out. Now, as I mentioned earlier in this sermon, there are 135 prophecies within these first 35 verses. So we can't talk about all of them. We don't have time. But what I want you to see is this section is a reminder that conflict and war on earth will continue until the end. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. In their place comes a new kingdom who is powerful and mighty and the standard of the day. And then that ruler makes some bad decisions or they're overthrown and then they fall. And, and for, throughout history, we see kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, kings come, kings go. People are trying to create peace on earth. People are trying to create solutions. But what we actually see here is people are just trying to look for power and they're, they're influenced by greed and they're influenced by control and, and they're making decisions that are for their good, but not for everybody else's good. And that's what we've been seeing throughout history. That's what we're gonna continue to see throughout history. The kind of kingdom that you and I crave, the kind of king that you and I wanna follow is is is. There's only one person who could fulfill that and his name is King Jesus. Jesus will rule a kingdom that cannot be overthrown. Jesus will sit on a throne as a king forever. His, his rule will not just be for a time or for a season or in some certain spot and not in other spots. He will rule over everything. Every king prior to him though is trying to gain control, trying to set themselves up, trying to increase their influence. But what we're gonna see throughout history is we're gonna see more and more conflict people trying to take what's not theirs. There's rising up and falling down nation upon nation. And that's gonna continue until one day Jesus comes and brings peace, brings Shalom, because only Jesus is the lead. He's the only leader who can make all things new, all things right. Can I get an amen? amen? Well, verses five through 20, they predict a time of war and drama that will go on for years between the kings of the north and the kings of the south, the kings of Syria and the kings of Egypt. This is all happening prior to uh, the Roman Empire, okay? This is on the heels of the Greek Empire, the days of Alexander. And, and, and the only way I could describe this section, we can't look at all of it, you just learned about a bunch of rulers and a bunch of crazy things in that section, but the only way I could describe it is that this is like the real housewives of antiquity, okay? <laughs> this section is just a bunch of drama on top of drama on top of drama, okay? There's divorce, there's murder, family members are poisoning each other, 
There's jealousy, there are marriage scandals, there's greed. Everyone is fighting to be the next big thing. Okay, if we were, if we were to get this prophecy today, we would actually be watching it on Bravo or MTV, all right? That's where you'd get it. Or you'd be, you'd be reading it in the National Enquirer on your way out of the grocery store. Okay, this is drama on top of drama, on top of drama, on top of drama. It, it, it's, it's showing us that there will be war and there will be struggle until the return of Jesus. And one king caught in the drama was a man named Antiochus III of Syria. His wars against Egypt were marked first by a series of defeats and then followed by a series of victories. But after he finally established himself, he sought to strengthen his kingdom by giving his daughter into marriage. Daniel eleven seventeen says this, he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. So everyone was looking for more control, more power. And one way you would do that in the ancient world is you would form an alliance by, by marrying off your children. And so he married off his 12-year-old daughter, a woman we know as Cleopatra. Cleopatra is 12 years old. She's sent to Egypt to become the wife of the king of Egypt and then to turn the Egyptians against, uh, against uh, the king so that this, her father could take over the land of Egypt. But what happened in the story is instead of doing what her father wanted her to do, she actually fell in love with her new husband, the king of Egypt, and decided to go and turn the king of Egypt against her father. And so he was furious about this. And so we read what happens, what was gonna happen and it actually did happen just as it said, Daniel eleven eighteen. Afterwards, he shall turn his face when he finds out that it didn't work selling off his daughter to the coastlands, that's the coasts of Egypt and capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and he shall not be found. And this is exactly what happened. History tells us that Antiochus III tried to attack Egypt after his plan failed and he went through the coastal cities, but he was stopped by the Roman armies, which were at that time on the rise. And in anger, he returned home, he plundered his own land. And when he attacked the temple of Jupiter, he stole its treasures. And then his people decided to rise up against him and they murdered him and his body was never found. And so his son, Seleucus IV, inherited the kingdom. But when he inherited the kingdom, he inherited a bunch of war debt. And so he had to send out tax collectors to plunder the temple in Jerusalem, which is exactly what Daniel said would happen. Verse 20, then shall arise in his place, one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days, he shall be broken, neither in, in anger nor in battle. The big idea is this, the Bible said it would happen and it what? It happened. Can you trust the Bible? You can trust the Bible. You can trust what the Bible says about your life. You can trust what the Bible says about heaven. You can trust what the Bible says about hell. You can trust what the Bible says about marriage. You can trust what the Bible says about parenting. You can trust what the Bible says about right and wrong. You can trust what the Bible says about the return of Jesus and the establishing of an eternal kingdom where he will rule and reign and you will shine like, like stars in the heavens. 
You can trust what the Bible says. And one way that God shows you that you can trust him, that you could believe him, that you could put all your chips on him is he gives you prophecies about the future. And he says, I'm gonna predict it. And then it's gonna happen. And if you wanna see, just open up the history books. I said it and it happened exactly as I said it. That is the God that we worship here at South Valley. We could trust him. He says it, it happens. His word is true. What he says about you is true. You're greatly loved. It's true. God's never gonna leave you or forsake you. Guess what? That's true. God says it, it happens. You can build your life on him. And prophecy is one of those ways that we're reminded that yes, we can trust God. Here's the thing. We're talking about history. We're talking about prophecy. And some of you are like, oh my gosh, I, I, I fell asleep in history class and, and now I'm trying not to fall asleep here today. I'm showing you history. I'm showing you prophecy. Because one thing I've realized is that there are people who call themselves believers, yet decide to do things their own way and not trust in God's way. And they'll make excuses and they'll justify their actions and they'll take a little bit of you know, liberal theology and sprinkle it in there or what they heard from an Instagram influencer and sprinkle it on there and, and kind of form their own opinion about God or their own opinion about the word. Or, or maybe they'll go to a, a, you know, a class at the university and they'll, they'll hear some, some crazy ideas and, and they'll start to reject the Bible because, you know what? No, the Bible is old. The Bible can't be true. But the Bible over and over again shows that it is in fact true. It is inerrant, just as it says. It is God-breathed. The Bible's God-breathed. You can trust it. Well, following Antiochus III came another ruler, and here's where things get even darker. Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV. This is what it says. Verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person. So there's warring over the north and the south. Israel's caught in the middle. There's, there's Syria and Egypt. And one of those, and that's in the, the, the wake of Alexander being gone. Well, one of those rulers that will rise up is Antiochus Epiphanes. He shall come in without warning and he'll obtain the kingdom by flatteries. This is an important figure in the Bible. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken. Even the prince of the covenant and from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with the small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder and spoil and goods. So he's gonna, he's gonna take the throne illegitimately and then he's gonna control people kind of like a drug cartel leader would do where he, he takes whatever he's making off of his, you know, bad decisions and bad business, and he's giving it to the people so as to control the people and, and make them follow him. That's what Antiochus does. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the kings of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with him in an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. There are times where he tries to set up around a dinner table. We read it in history, these alliances. 
And what he does is he gets around the table and he promises protection and he promises an alliance. And then when he leaves that, that meeting, he actually turns his back on all of his promises and he attacks the people that he says he's going to protect. Even those who eat his food shall break him. Uh, they'll speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time, or this shall be said again. Oh my gosh, at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this, this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall deuce with shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among them shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So that's Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes is someone we met in an earlier chapter. He was the Antichrist, you might remember, of the Old Testament. That's what we often call him. A picture of the future Antichrist, a preview of the future Antichrist who, who will rise up during the tribulation period. Antiochus Epiphanes was among the most wicked men who ever lived. He was the Hitler of his day. He was the king of the Seleucid Empire, one of the four kingdoms that emerged from Alexander the Great's former territory. And he, he, he seized the, the throne in an illegitimate way. He, he seized it, he took it from his nephew and he enlarged his kingdom through military power. And according to historians, Antiochus was the first person in history to persecute people simply for their religious beliefs. And the people he hated the most were the Jews. So he sought out to exterminate the Jews. He, he fought for control of their land and then he sought to exterminate them and he would often take out his wrath and his anger upon them. He marched upon Jerusalem in fury and he defiled everything that was holy to God's people. He banned circumcision. He outlawed holy days. He forced the, the priests who work in the temple to eat food that was sacrificed to idols. He forced fed them. He set up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. He made it illegal for you, or he made it illegal for you to rest on the Sabbath. He, he forced you to work on the Sabbath, set up a temple or a statue of Zeus, slaughtered a pig on the altar. He, he raped, he plundered, he killed. He was evil incarnate. He defiled everything the Jews deemed holy. He outlawed the scriptures. He burned the Bible. He was a complete abomination. We read in history that he slaughtered 80,000 Jews, including women and children. And he sold another 40,000 Jews into slavery. He often publicly tortured those who were against him, even in times in front of their own family members. He called himself Epiphanes, which means God-man, but others called him Epimenes, which means madman. And the reason this guy is in important to understand is because of this. Antiochus is a preview of the Antichrist. The wicked things that Antiochus did, 
the wicked ways that he fought against God's people and defiled what was holy and had very little reverence, no reverence at all for the holy things. The way that he moved, the way that he acted, we read in scripture is actually a picture, a preview, a trailer of a future ruler called the Antichrist. Jesus talks about him in Matthew 24. John talks about him in the book of Revelation. Antiochus is a type of Antichrist. He is evil incarnated. Well, one day there will be another ruler who is evil incarnated, likely possessed by Satan, able to do signs and wonders and mysterious things. And he will do abominable things similarly to the things that we saw with Antiochus Epiphanies, the way he desecrated the temple, the way he slaughtered God's people, the way he trampled on the truth. And, and although anti, the Antichrist might not be here yet today, we do know that the spirit of Antichrist is already alive and well. Some of this is already happening. Truth is being trampled on. Truth is being canceled. Truth is being taken out of books. Okay, the, the, the Antichrist may not be here right now in front of us, but the spirit of Antichrist is already alive and well. And what we've read in Daniel is that things are actually gonna get worse before they get better because one day a, a worse ruler than Antiochus will rise up and he will oppose God's people in ways that Antiochus did, but it will be even more brutal, which leads to the final ruler prophesied. You guys hanging in there? Final ruler, and that is the Antichrist. So we talked about five rulers, all starting with the letter A. The last is the Antichrist, and this is what it says. And the king, so coming after him, and it doesn't say when, one day in the future, that's often in prophecy. There's a picture of what's gonna happen soon, and then there's a picture of what's gonna happen later. And oftentimes what happens soon is a preview or a type or foreshadows a greater fulfillment in the future, and that's exactly what's happening here. And the king shall do as he wills, talking about the Antichrist. He'll exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. People often ask, what will the Antichrist be like? What should I be looking for? Where is he? Is he here right now? Is he, in, is he this guy? Is he that guy? This is what we'll know about the Antichrist. He'll exalt himself, magnify himself above every God. And he'll speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses. That means he'll want power and control instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold. He's likely gonna have a spiritual heritage, but he's gonna turn on his spiritual heritage to somebody that, that his fathers didn't worship because he'll honor gold and silver. He'll control the world economically with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of, foreign, of a foreign God. He'll have other allies, people who get around him and behind him who are also strong and powerful. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. Okay, if you're on his side, things will go well for you. If you're not on his side, things will go poorly for you. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through them like nothing. He'll come into the glorious land, that's Israel, 
Jerusalem, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. Some will be spared. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. Other nations will get on board with him. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. Some will try to rise up against him, but everyone who rises up against him will ultimately lose because no man, no earthly kingdom can stand against Satan and demons. We've already learned that so far in Daniel. There are powerful forces behind the scenes waging war for our souls, waging wars over what we believe to be true. There are powerful forces that are controlling things that we, cannot see, that we see today, although we don't see what's happening behind the veil. We cannot stop those forces. Only God can. Only Jesus can. And so there's going to be wars, people fighting against him, but they're all going to fail because man can't stand up against him. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to an end with no one to help him. So here we have the final description of the Antichrist in the Old Testament. Final description. So far, we've learned this about the Antichrist. We've learned that, that Daniel saw a vision of what is gonna be the most powerful dictator the world has ever seen. We also know earlier that he would be somebody who was renowned, somebody who was eloquent with his words, somebody who could capture an audience with strong speaking abilities uh, and capture people's attention and capture the attention of the administrations of the world. We also learned that the combination of his magnetic personality and his speaking abilities and his good looks, which Daniel talked about earlier, will make him virtually irresistible to the masses. So sometimes when we think of Antichrist, we think of a very, very dark, disturbing person, but this is not gonna be a very dark, disturbing person. This is gonna be somebody that you're gonna wanna follow, that you're gonna wanna trust because this person is going to be a winner. And so what are the characteristics that Daniel shares? Well, he shares nine. And uh, I'm gonna share with you actually nine, just so you know. Because I know in the past I said that I had a certain number and I didn't share that. In fact, I'm wearing right now, I don't know if this is appropriate, but I'm gonna lift my shirt up. I have this shirt on right here uh, that some people in the church made for me. They said, you can't remember number eight in your sermon, but you can remember the RAM score. Uh, <laughs> so I, got, I said I got nine characteristics of this, uh, the Antichrist. I'm gonna share with you nine, okay? We got nine. Number one is this, he's gonna be a winner. He's gonna be somebody that wins and those who follow him are gonna be winning in his wake. He is going to be a winner. He'll, be, he'll do according to his, what he will, wants and he shall prosper in what he wants. Number two, he's gonna set himself up to be worshiped. Now this might not happen immediately because we read in Daniel that there are seven years of tribulation in the first three and a half years, there's a peace treaty and it looks like things are well. And it looks like the world is going great and people are beginning to trust this guy. And then he'll flip the script three and a half years in and he'll do kind of like Antiochus Epiphanes, he'll come upon the temple, he'll set himself up to be worshiped. We, I don't know exactly how it's gonna happen, but he will be setting himself up to be worshiped as a God. Number three, he'll gain powerful platforms to speak against God. He's, he's going to, to take over whatever platform he can to, to silence the voice of Christians, to silence the agenda of God's elect. And he is going to speak in every way he can against those people. He'll speak blasphemies against God. Number four, he'll abolish religious freedom. 
So at first it'll seem like he is for all people. And then one day he's going to flip the script and he'll be only about his own agenda. He'll regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any God for he shall exalt himself above them all. He'll abolish it all. Number five, he'll gain military control. So he won't just be somebody who looks good and sounds good, but he's gonna have the keys to the kingdom. He shall honor a God of fortresses. He will be powerful. Number six, he will declare war against his enemies. Anybody who stands against him, he will fight and he will win. Number seven, he'll successfully defend himself against other nations. When people attack him, he's gonna come back and he's gonna win. The king of the south shall attack him and the king of the north, and they'll come and with chariots, but they're not gonna make it. With many, they'll, they'll try to attack him, but they're not going to win. Number eight, he'll gain economic control. He'll have power over the treasures of gold and silver. He'll slowly go and grow. And in, in Daniel 7, he was a little horn that started little and became big. And that's what's gonna happen. It's gonna go from little to big, just a little bit here and a little power there and a little control here. And then all of a sudden it's gonna be control of everything. And finally, number nine, and this is the, the point that I want you to remember the most today. And it's this, he will be destroyed by King Jesus and he will be cast into the lake of fire. How do we apply this passage? Let's talk about some application. Number one, it's time to pick a side. What side are you on today? Is your allegiance to Jesus Christ? Or are you being wooed over to other ideologies, other worldviews? You have to today pick a side. What side are you on? There is a war, whether you wanna accept it or you don't wanna accept it. There is a war going on behind the scenes for control of your life, for strongholds in your family, for control of, of, of countries, for control of towns, for control of churches. There is a war and you will have to pick a side. Which side are you gonna be on? I encourage you today to pick Team Jesus. Pick a side. Jesus' side is the winning side. Jesus' side is the one, the, Jesus comes through. Jesus is the one who conquers. And here's the thing. The reason though we struggle with Jesus' side is because sometimes we wanna do things our way. And when we do things our way, that's exactly how the enemy does his things. And so we're wooed over to the dark side because it's like, oh, just do what you want. And so when you just do what you want, you pick that side. Pick a side today. Which side are you on? The kingdoms of the earth will continue to war against each other until the end. Only Jesus brings peace. Are you on his side? Number two, stop worrying about the future. Daniel got these visions when he was worried about the future as a, an effort from God to tell him, you don't need to worry about the future. I got it covered. I got it figured out. Yeah, kings will come and go. Yeah, nations will rise up and fall down. But in the end, I'm going to win. I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. I know what's happening. You don't need to worry about the future. I wanna encourage you, church, stop worrying. Worry is a thief. It'll steal your time. It'll steal your energy. It'll steal your joy. It'll steal your sleep. Worry will suck you dry if you allow it to. You don't need to live with fear. You can live with faith because you belong to a God who is greater than anything this world can throw at you. Live with faith. Stop worrying, live with faith. Number three, put on the armor of God. If we're really in a battle, then that means we really need to armor up. We need to armor up every day. 
and, and not just go nonchalantly through life, but see with eyes that can see what's happening behind the scenes. We are in a battle. Do you wear the armor of God or are you exposed? Are you building your life on God's truth or on your own opinions? Do you gear up every day with God's truth, God's righteousness, God's love, do you wear his armor? Because you'll need it because you're gonna be attacked. And finally, number four, leave your mark. Time on earth is so short. Our time here is so short. It's like a drop in the bucket. We're here one day, we're gone the next. We have this tiny little timeline to make a huge impact in a short amount of time. And my question for you is what kind of mark are you gonna leave on this planet? What kind of mark are you gonna leave on your kids' lives? What kind of mark are you gonna leave on Lemoor? What kind of mark are you gonna leave on this country? What kind of mark are you going to leave? God wants you to leave your mark, to be a shining light for him. The world needs hope and it's the church that he has deemed to be the deliverers of that hope. God wants to use you to bring the hope of Jesus to the world. So leave your mark. We're gonna close right now with communion. If you guys have the emblems, go ahead and pull them out. Communion is something we do every baptism Sunday. And it's a reminder, if, if you need the emblems, by the way, raise your hand and the ushers will come and, and deliver you uh, some communion emblems. Just keep your hand up high if you need some. Yeah, you can take that, thank you. Communion reminds us what Jesus endured to purchase us. Jesus went to a cross to bring us back to the Father. Jesus endured the shame of, of crucifixion in, in, in the public eye for sinners like you and I. And, and he did it to, to defeat the, the strongholds of Satan. The strongholds Satan has in our lives, the strongholds sin has in our lives. Jesus on the cross, he dealt with our sin in full. It is finished, he says on the cross, it is finished. We also know that when we receive Jesus, we receive the power of the Holy Spirit and the spirit who is in us is greater than the spirit who is in the world. And so in Jesus, we have victory over everything this world throws at us. And communion is a time to remember that victory in Jesus. Part of that though is a time of repentance. Jesus, here's where I've blown it. Here's where I've gotten it wrong. Here's where I'm messing up. Here's where I'm believing the lie. I wanna encourage you right now, before we take the emblems together, confess your sin to him. Have you been wooed over into lies? Have you been walking down a dark path? Bring it to Jesus today. Communion is a time for believers. If you're a believer, this is for you. If you're not, Believe in Jesus today for the first time and take this communion with us today. Talk to God, be real with him, and then I'll lead us in the emblems. Go ahead and take a moment.
Matthew 26, 26. says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body. Let's remember Jesus' body broken for us. And he took a cup. He said, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's remember Jesus' blood. Will you pray with me? Father God, you are so amazing. I read passages like Daniel 11, although it hurts my brain, it reminds me that you are so much bigger than us. You are worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our praise. You've got it together. You've got it going on. You know where things are headed. You are in control. We are fearful at times and we don't need to be if we belong to you, if we are on your side, if we've been redeemed by the blood of your son, we have hope in this life. We have hope in the life to come. And God, I just pray God that anytime fear creeps in, anytime lies of the enemy creep in, that we would build our lives on your truth, on your word, that when struggles come, when pain comes, when suffering comes, that we would know that we will not be shaken because we have the spirit of God in us. We worship the King who is truly on the throne. You are alive. You are here. You are with us today. We love you. We praise you. We need you. This town needs you. This county needs you. This church needs you. This country needs you. The world needs you. King Jesus, make us bright for you. Make us passionate for you. Make us a church that proclaims you everywhere we go, that we would see the fruit of the gospel going out, going forth changing lives, turning this world upside down because the gates of hell cannot prevail against your church. That is your promise for us today. Help us to live in that promise. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, why don't you stand up and let's close with a song.